We live in a world that is filled with awe-inspiring goodness. We have friends here from Baton Rouge this weekend, and we've spent time driving around. We, my first trip up Hopkins Gap was in a car, unlike Joetta on a bike. Um, I didn't even break a sweat. It was just... <laughs> we live in this world that's filled with awe-inspiring goodness and horrific evil. Love and hate. Beauty and ugliness. Life and death. That's, it's this mixed-up thing we live in. Take our city. Beautiful. This city we live in is filled with beauty. It's a friendly city. This is a good place to live. And yet, in this city that is so good, there's sadness. There are people who live in our city who've experienced profound injustice. One example, in the 1960s, in an attempt to bring renewal to downtown Harrisonburg, our city drew down on federal funds for urban renewal by redeveloping the historic African-American community called Newtown. So you know how we redeveloped it? We used... Things such as eminent domain to displace 93 African Americans from historic homes that we then turned into a parking lot. It was done with good intentions, but it tore the heart of the African American community in Harrisonburg out, and the community still has not recovered. Our world is good and broken. And in the letter that Paul writes to the churches in and around Ephesus, he is telling the story of how this good and beautiful world that God has created has been hijacked by some suprahuman cosmic power. Last week, we looked at this fascinating account, this notion of the powers. And we saw that Paul told the Ephesians that these powers have corrupted creation. They've corrupted our world, but God has dealt a death blow to these powers in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by installing Jesus Christ as the Lord of the cosmos over the powers. We looked at that last week. Now, this is an audacious claim. This claim that Jesus Christ is above every power, that he's over, he has authority that's greater than every authority, that he has power greater, that he has no rivals. This audacious claim that God has triumphed over the rebellious powers that oppress creation and humanity, this claim that in Christ God has broken 
the enslaving grip that darkness has on our world. That's the claim Paul puts out there in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 through 23. It's the heart of the letter. It's that bold, audacious claim. God raised Jesus from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places above all rule and authority and power and lordship and above every name that is invoked both in this present age and in the one to come. That's the central claim of the letter to the Ephesians. And then what Paul does in chapter 2 is he gives two examples, two proofs. Jesus is victorious over the powers. You're going to make a claim like that. You need to back it up with some sort of evidence. Evidence number one, verses 1 to 10. Evidence number two, verses 11 through 18. Now, this is exactly what is going on in Exodus chapter 15 that Bob read to us. In Exodus chapter 15, if you remember, the way it starts out is that God is a man of war. Now, this is called the divine warrior motif in Scripture. That in the Old Testament, we're we're given a way of looking at God, that God is a warrior. And who is he in war against? The powers and authorities that have hijacked his good world. And there's this, this formula in the Old Testament where God is declared as victorious. And then there's decisive battles that are referenced to prove he's victorious. That's step two. And then step three, God's people gather to worship him because he's victorious and because his victories worked out in these two ways. Now what Paul is doing in Ephesians 1.20 through the end of chapter 2 is he's copying that formula. He declares God is authoritative. Then he gives examples of God's victory over the enemies. And then he talks about the church gathered in worship. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see how Ephesians functions. Some of you are going to be frustrated because one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. But what I'm going to do this morning is set Ephesians 2.10 in its context. There are a hundred sermons to be preached on this passage. I'm going to preach one sermon this morning. And I'm going to do that by showing how the whole thing works together. Now the first example that we have of God's great power that is victorious over the powers is in chapter 2, starting Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. You were dead because of your offenses and sins. That was the road you used to travel. Keeping in step with this world's present age. In step two, with the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is even now at work among people whose whole lives consist of disobeying God. Actually, that's how all of us used to behave, conditioned by physical desires. We used to do what our flesh and our minds were urging us to do. What was the result? We too were subject to wrath in our natural state, like everyone else. So Paul begins by saying, you were enslaved to death. Death had a vice-like grip on you. Simply by living in this world and going through the day-to-day patterns of life, we were exposed to and captured by the slave traders of death. This happens through the passing on of a cultural heritage. This happens through exploitative and manipulative relational patterns we pick up in our homes and then perpetuate. This happens through national rhetoric 
of extreme patriotism, supremacy, and power. This happens through addictions and ideologies and patterns of thinking and behaving that are brilliantly designed in such a perverted way that they ensure the only way of life we can imagine are the ones that keep us wrapped up in death. Now look at verse 4. But when it comes to mercy, God is rich. He had such a great love for us that he took us at the very point we were dead through our offenses and made us alive together with the king. Yes, you are saved by sheer grace. That's good news. These powerful forces that enslave us in death, they've been defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. God's mercy is rich. His love is great. His great love, his rich mercy manifests themselves by delivering us, freeing us, emancipating us from death. And it's just a gift. It's just a, a gift. Here's a gift. Life. And it's free. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We only have to receive it. It's like a Christmas gift. Here. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. All you have to do is take it. All you have to do is receive it. Now in verses 1 to 3, Paul describes death. And then in verses 4 to 10, he sets up a series of sharp contrasts. From death in verses 1 to 3 to life in verses 4 to 10. From the sentence of God's intense anger to an experience of God's incomparable love. From a life controlled by death traitors to a life sustained by the grace of God. And now look at verse 10. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are recreated by the power of God through the cross and resurrection of Christ for good works, it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should, and if you write in your Bible, you can underline this, walk in them. This is called an inclusio. It's a, it's a literary technique where you, you introduce something at the beginning of, of a thought and then you bring it up again at the end. So if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, verse 1, we are dead. We walk in all this death. This is what we walked in, verse 2. And then it ends in verse 10, good works are what we walk in. This is the powerful work of Christ. He delivers us from death works that we're enslaved to. And then empowers us for good works that we were made to do. All of us have to discover the ways that God uniquely made us to bring good to this world. One of the fundamental reasons I'm a Christian is because it's the best way I know to do the good that I know I should be doing. He created us to do good things, to be agents of shalom in this world. And his salvation is not to escape this world. It's to deliver us so that we can act like humans were made to act. Not enslaved to death works, but freed to do good works. 
Now, just like in Ephesians where God defeats an enemy in, 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 in Exodus, here God is defeating our enemy of death. That what God was doing in Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection is manifesting his great power to shatter the, the grip on us that death had. All right, now let's pull back. We have this audacious claim in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, that in Christ's death and resurrection, God has broken the enslaving grip of darkness over the world. And then in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, we have an example of how God has done this. He's done this by powerfully delivering us from slavery to death. Setting us free to do good. Now let's look at the second example. You're going to say that Jesus is the Lord of the cosmos? You've got to back this up. So the first example he gives is a vertical example. God reconciles us to the one who made us so that we can do the good the good God made us to do. Now he's going to give a horizontal example. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Look, look at this. Ephesians 2, verses 11. Remember this, he says, in human terms, that is, in your flesh, you are, put it in scare quotes, Gentiles. You are the people whom the so-called circumcision referred to as the so-called uncircumcision. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the churches in and around Ephesus, he's reminding them of the ethnic divisions that plague our world. Drop down to verse 14. Christ is our peace, you see. He has made the two one, the Gentiles and the Jews. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall, that turns us into enemies of each other. In Christ, God has overcome the horrible perversion of division between people groups. And how has he done this? Well, look in verse 15. He's done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. Now, let's just take a deep breath and try to figure this one out. It's massively complicated. I've got to say something about this. So let's take just a few minutes to wrap our mind around this thing that comes up in so many of the parts of the New Testament. God had given Israel a gift. The gift we call the Old Testament. He gave it to Israel. And it's filled with the story of God's work in this world to heal it. And it includes a gift to Israel. And, and, and it includes within this gift, he showed Israel a pattern of living that would bring them into a consistent line with the grain of the universe. But this gift, this gift of the law, while it was designed to work to result in blessing like everything else in the cosmos, it too was hijacked by the powers. And the powers use it to serve their own ends. To, and what is their end? To divide, to enslave. Rather than identifying ways to serve the nations by being distinctive, 
Israel held itself aloof from the nations and arrogantly judged the nations based on their distinctives. Look at it this way. Israel was called by God to be a light to the nations, to be set apart, to cultivate a national way of life that was distinctive from the way of life of the nations. And that way of life was to be their holiness. Rather than exploiting and dominating other people, Israel was to love and serve one another. They were to care for the poor, for orphans, for the widow. And their relationships with other nations, they weren't supposed to act like the nations act. They weren't supposed to be agitating for superiority over the nations. They were to function as light on behalf of God to the nations that God wanted to redeem and reclaim and heal. But instead, Israel, rather than cultivating a way of life that was different, we call it holiness, they imitated the way of life of the nations. They exploited the poor. They neglected the orphan. And the widow, they agitated nationally for dominance. And here's the crucial point. Because of the corruption of creation by the powers, Israel ended up using the gift of the law as a point of pride. To arrogantly judge the nations rather than to seek their salvation. Look at it this way. Let me try to come at it a third way. Each and every culture, each and every ethnic group, every race has distinctive gifts, unique patterns of life, celebrations. Every nation is unique from the others. And that's not bad. God made the nations... The way he made trees. The differences are beautiful. Our cultural distinctives set us apart from one another for the purpose of blessing one another. National boundaries are supposed to be places where cultures meet to bless each other. To give and receive gifts. But boundaries between nations have become places where we meet to destroy one another and to prevent one another from entering and leaving. Instead of setting tables for joyful feasting, we build walls and watchtowers and our suspicions of one another intensify at our borders. Now let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. He is our peace. He has made the two to be one. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall that turns us into enemies of each other. What he's saying is that in Christ, God has overcome the horrible perversion of division between people. 
And how has he done this? Look at verse 15. He has done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. Now remember, the law in and of itself is not bad. It is not the problem. The problem was that the powers hijacked the law and pressed its distinctions into service for their own ends of setting nations against each other. The law was and is God's good gift to his people, giving light to the eyes and nourishment for the soul. The law is where we encounter God, where we learn about his gracious character and his faithful commitment to restore creation and give life to his people. That was the special role of the law. And the distinctions, they were necessary for Israel to carry all of this out. But because of the way the powers corrupt everything. They corrupted that purpose of the law for evil. That is what Christ abolishes. He overcame that broken function of the law. Now we know this because in chapter 6, Paul quotes the law. You've heard that it said, honor your father and mother and Lord. This is the right thing to do. He has no problem quoting the law, calling us to live by the law. In fact, this word abolish the law in Romans, he says, does grace abolish law? God forbid, no. He's working out a very complex argument. It's multi-layered. But you read this in the context of Christ's victory over the powers, that his powers have entered into creation. And in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, they've corrupted our vertical relationship, the relationship between humans and God. And in chapter 2, verses 11 to 18, they've corrupted our horizontal relationships. So in other words, the powers have not only divided us from God, they've divided us from each other. And Christ came to defeat both of those divisions. Right In chapter 2, verse 12, you were separated from Christ. Just like in 2, 1 to 10, or you were separated from each other. Just like in 2, 1 to 10, you're separated from God. Now, all of this goes back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. In Christ, God is working out his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and earth. God's work is to unite, to bring all things together. And, and he says that's what he's done. And then he says example number one, he reunites us with himself. Example number two, the divisions of the nations. Now, that's chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. And then look what he does in verses 19 to 22. What's the result of all this reuniting? Reuniting of us with God, of ethnic groups with each other. Now remember, Paul was a former SS guard for the Pharisees. Paul used to be a xenophobe, and now he loves the Gentiles. Paul is saying to the Gentiles, I used to hate you and kill you, but look at what God has done. In Christ, I now love you, and we're worshiping in church together. He's saying, look, God has reconciled us to him, and in our very experience, me with you Gentiles, he has healed an ethnic division. All right, that's his two examples. And then in verse 19, he says, now what's the result of all this? This is the result. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. No, you're fellow citizens with God's holy people. You're members of God's household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with King Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is fit together and grows up into a holy temple. You too being built together in him into a place where God will live by his spirit. 
Now, remember the big picture. Remember God created this world to be a good, flourishing place. But the powers rebelled and they hijacked God's good world and they've held it in their enslaving and oppressive grip. But God has broken the power of that grip in Christ and we see this in the church. Right now I see this. Right now, I look in this room, and I see people who were enemies of God and are not anymore. Who were enslaved to death works and now are living into good works. And I also look in this room, and I see ethnic groups that have been brought together. He's delivered us from enslavement to death ways. And when you look in this room and when you look at the church around the world, you see the remarkable overcoming of ethnic divisions. The church around the world is a thousand times the United Nations. It really is. It really, really is. The best the United Nations hopes for is here in the church. The church is the most multi-ethnic gathering group entity the world has ever seen. And we, Ernie was talking about, he was at a, a gathering of Anglicans not long ago and he saw this and he sends us a picture, a few of us, of, of leaders of the Anglican communion. And on stage are all these ethnic groups. Leading worship. And, and he said, look, it's happening. It's here. This beautiful thing. God has really done it. And so then in verses 19 through 22, Paul summarizes all of this. And what he's saying is that God has triumphed over the powers of darkness by opening a sphere of creation that is the beginning. It's a monument to what God is going to eventually do in every square inch of creation. Look at the church, he says. And you see people reconciled to God and people reconciled to each other. That is what God is up to in this world. And that's what God is going to do everywhere in this world, with every square inch of this world. The whole world was meant to live in shalom and unity and flourishing and and. Something happened, it got broken, and God promised to fix it, and these promises are being filled in the church. Okay, now, where does this leave us? Well, again, pull back. Pull back and think. Paul is saying what, Paul is defining salvation in a very thick way. Salvation is reconciliation with God in Just sheer grace. And it's reconciliation with each other. That God's salvation is a 360 degree all of life salvation. When Paul goes to talk about salvation. If you only think about chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. If you don't realize verses 11 to 18 are another example of salvation. Then you end up thinking that salvation is only vertical. But do you see when you read the whole thing, it's vertical and horizontal. So where does this leave us? It leaves us here. As a church, we must get really good at sharing the reconciliation with God that is possible in Christ in a winsome, accessible, compelling way in the culture we live in. And as a church, we must get really good at working for reconciliation among groups 
that are divided. Because just as much as reconciliation with God is within the target of salvation, reconciliation between groups is within the target of salvation. And so that's why I started the sermon by referencing a terrible tragedy that occurred in our town that there is still a group of people in our town that have not recovered from it. Now, JMU is doing really good work to recover the story of what happened out of good intentions for urban renewal. But they have interviews of people who, when they were eight years old, they had to leave their home. And then they watched their home burn down and replaced with a parking lot. That doesn't happen to empowered people. That happens to disempowered people. And it was good intentions, but it was a failed experiment. And it happened all over America. If we're going to be a church downtown, we have to take the brokennesses of downtown seriously. We have to learn them and labor for their renewal at the same time that we get really good at sharing the reconciliation with God that's available in Christ, we have to also share the reconciliation with each other that's available with Christ. Now, what we're going to do now is something kind of odd. We don't normally do this. Um, Mike Deaton is going to come up here and he's going to interview Bishop Andudu because we, are, we have a relationship not only with hostility and division in our town. But there is one of the great tragedies in the world today is what's happening in Sudan. And it's about ethnic hostilities and national hostilities. It's about exactly what this passage is talking about. And we as a church have been waiting to hear from Andudu about his trip to Sudan and his sneaking across the border and all of that work. And we haven't had a chance until this Sunday when it just so happens that our passage leads us to know that when Jesus said the greatest commandment, he couldn't stop there. He had to push on into the horizontal commandment too. They hang together. If we are going to pursue reconciliation with God, we must pursue reconciliation with each other. And we must labor for it. So Mike is going to come and interview Andudu about this. And then we're going to pray. We're going to pray for Bishop Andudu. We're going to pray for Sudan and for what's going on there.